as I uh, sat back there about the five minutes before the five minutes ago, I thought, oh, on my laptop I have a uh, a picture of what Joshua, our son, is going through. I was going to share with you guys, but unfortunately it wasn't coming up. So I was back there trying to scramble to get it. Um, before I start the message, let me just go ahead and, and some of you know, many of you know that Joshua has had um, urinary tract infections. And when they tested for the bacteria, the bacteria that came back over the last two and a half years were things like uh, Streptococcus D, Staph, and E. coli. And those are uh, fairly, fairly serious, as you can recognize by the names, infections. And so um, there's other, you know, physical things we had noticed and were concerned about. So we had we followed up with the doctor. Turns out there's something basically to kind of put it in layman's terms is urinary reflux. If you can imagine your your kidneys in your body, they drain into your bladder, right? And when you need to go, your bladder squeezes and you go. Right? Well, with Joshua, what happens is when his bladder squeezes, some of that urine comes back up towards his kidneys. And so you have five levels of reflux. First level is it just kind of goes a little towards the kidneys. Second one, it hits the kidneys. The third, it kind of fills up that tube towards the kidneys. The fourth, it really fills up that tube and part of the, part of the, the kidney itself. And the fifth is it starts to twist and become a real problem. Well, it turns out Joshua has grade, this is from the appointment with the specialist that uh, many of you have been praying about. He has grade two and grade four. He has bilateral urinary reflux. That means both sides, so therefore both kidneys. On the grade four, it's going all the way up and starting to swell. And the other side is just grade two. It just means it's going up and starting to get slightly enlarged. Um, this has affected his kidneys. One kidney is smaller than it should be. Uh, the other kidney is larger than it should be. The larger kidney is the one with, the, with less of the reflux. And so it's, it looks like that kidney is probably compensating for the damaged kidney. I asked the doctor, I said, we're not talking about a if we have a reduction in kidney function on that side, but how much? He said, that's correct. So um, causes of, of this are just, you know, can be genetics, usually born, giving it birth. The fact that there was two little bodies crunched up in one little tummy inside uh, Stacy probably made it hard for them to really see this at birth, which is where they often see it. So that's the update. The next step is they're going to do a procedure to test kidney function. That damaged kidney, as long as there's 10% or more function, they're going to be able to keep that kidney, and it's possible that it could um, uh, recuperate. It could recover. Uh, obviously, many of us know you can operate on a 25% function of one kidney if you had to. So obviously, we're, we would like you to pray for the ideal, which is um, because of those two urinary tracts going into the bladder, those valves, which you'd call blown valves, instead of being one-way valves, letting the urine go in, it's two ways. He's going to have to surgically repair both those valves. So be praying uh, for us, uh, for, the, for the surgeon. Turns out the doctor we ran across happens to be the, the chief of Children's Hospital Oakland. He's our urologist. And he, everyone I've talked to, he comes highly recommended. I mentioned it because I think he did some work with the Wilsons. I said, Sam Wilson. He said, how old is he? I said, oh, probably 1920 by now. He said, oh, that was 20,000 kids ago. <laughs> you know, he wanted to remember, but he just simply couldn't. But he's that good. 
he's that good. There's a less invasive procedure. He said, you know what? It just wouldn't, it wouldn't do the trick. So um, very helpful. Just pray, pray for our witness. Um, pray for our focus to be on the Lord. That none of these things would move us. And that, uh, and all these things that work in Joshua's life as well. That even at the age of five, he might sense the Lord's hand in his life and it might speak to him. With that, let's uh, begin our message. Please open to Acts chapter 17. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm excited about where we're at in this passage. It's an exciting time. You stop and think about what we're reading. Oh, yeah, it's the book of Acts. Oh, yeah, it's chapter 17. It's my Bible. I've had it for years. This is history in the making. You're watching the word of God be spread throughout the world. People are getting saved. Persecution is happening. There's earthquakes. There's all sorts of stuff. And it's exciting. You want to turn that on for me, Jake? You can grab the lights, Gary. Take a little while for that to warm up. We're going to look at our map again of where we left off. And this is the second missionary journey of Paul and Silas. Remember, remember, remember Timothy? And um, also in Troas, they picked up Luke as well. Now, even the exciting things going on, like being beaten with rods in Philippi and earthquakes and things like that, one of the things I try to remember is, you know what? They've got the daily humdrum like we do. They've got the daily getting in and off the boat, getting on and off the boat, getting uh, uh, walking from place to place. You talk, talk about where they start off here in Antioch, and they went through the and encouraged the, the churches from the first missionary journey, and the Lord led them, not let them go to Asia or Bithynia, but led them to go from Troas, where they picked up Luke, up here in Macedonia. Remember, there was the Macedonian call, a man dressed like he was from Macedonia. He said, come over here and help us. And even though it was a man, it was Lydia, one of the first believers in Philippi. But you know what? That takes time. And we are, we're going to learn, Paul's a tent maker. He builds tents. That's what he does. You know? But the reality was he didn't live for tent making. He didn't live for the job. He lived to serve Christ. And he did each day and worked each day as he had to. But the overall goal is to serve the Lord as the Lord led him here all the way up to Philippi. I, I'm, ex- I'm challenged by the examples, of I think, of the Lord Jesus and of Paul. Some people would say, well, you know, what the Lord really wants is he wants worshipers. We should be worshiping the Lord. You know, we should be focusing on worship and... You know, that's what we should, that's what we should be spending most of our time, you know, in our closets, you know, worshiping the Lord quietly. And I'm not going to take anything away from worship. Paul worshiped the Lord while he was on a boat. Paul worshiped the Lord when he was in prison, wrongly accused and beaten. He worshiped as he traveled, as he moved. Who does that remind you of? Constantly moving, constantly serving others, and at the same time, constantly in fellowship with the Lord. That's Jesus, isn't it? And it's really both, isn't it? So I'll be honest, I'm excited about the evangelism class we're going to be doing here. Some of us, a few of us are doing a parenting class, and I'm telling you, I'm chomping at the bit to be in this evangelism class with you guys. I hope our parenting class turns into the type of evangelistic class it should be that some of you have experienced in the past with your kids. Out in, out in the world, seeing a difference. 
But in the meantime, I want to bring out some applications for us for evangelism in this area and, and in general. We're going to see that Paul, each time he went to a place, he had a methodology. He had a way of approaching each situation. He was prepared about what, what he was going to do and how he was going to do it. But he's also flexible. You've got to be flexible in evangelism because you don't know what's going to happen or what your situation is going to be like or what the response is going to be like. And what you really need to have is you need to have a heart for people. We're going to see Paul's heart for people today. Okay, beginning at verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying... This Jesus, whom I preached you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Okay, so we have first we see kind of Paul's methodology. He goes from Philippi, and again, why doesn't he stop in Amphipolis? Why doesn't he stop in Apollon? Why does, why does he go all the way to Thessalonica? You know what? I think he's just being led of the Lord. Maybe these places aren't ready yet. Maybe the Lord wants him to go to key cities, and then those believers will reach out. We're going to be studying in, in Thessal Thessalonians that, that Paul says, we have no reason to talk to you about certain things because we already know about you from everybody else. They speak so well about you and your impact in that area for Christ. And so they go from Philippi through these cities to Thessalonica. What's the methodology? Jake, if you can get that. What's the, what's the methodology we see Paul... No, just get the lights, please. What's the methodology that we see that, Paul's use, that Paul uses for each time he's visiting each city? That's right. He goes to the synagogue first. That's great. What better place to go than the people who could know what he's talking about and really who should know what he's talking about? You see? What did, Paul, what did he do probably growing up all his life? He grew up going to the synagogues. It's a place he was familiar with. It's a place where they talked about the Lord and about religious things. And it's a place they could know the Messiah, if they understood the scriptures correctly and would hear that Jesus has come. Okay? Besides that methodology of always going to the synagogue first, he was prepared. When he got there in the synagogues, what did he do? He reasoned with them from the scriptures. He took the scriptures, and I like the way it says this in this verse, it says, explaining, verse 3, explaining and demonstrating. 
I kind of looked that up. It, it kind of means you kind of you open it up and you set it before them. He put it on a platter form. Okay? That Jesus is the Messiah. Christ means Messiah. And these are Jews in a foreign country. Christ being the Greek uh, translation of the word Messiah. So he opened it up and laid it out for them. And who does that remind you of? It reminds me of Jesus. Remember Jesus on the, catches the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and they're all confused. They don't understand what's going on. We thought this Jesus was somebody. Now he's dead and somebody said something about him raising the life. We don't get it. You see? Jesus comes along. What does he do? Starting at the beginning. Moses and all the prophets. He shows them the things about himself. You see? I think that's great. That's why I appreciate this firm foundations, a stranger book, taking people from the beginning and showing them who Jesus is. Now, I remember catching that early on and being reminded of that by, by the leaders here and in the interim program. Stick to the scriptures. Keep the Bible out. Have them read the Bible. Reason from the scriptures, not your own logic. Not your own arguments, not the way you feel, but the scriptures are the ones that are going to give life. But to be honest, even when you're fully prepared from the scriptures, even if you can open it up and lay it out, you're not always going to get 100% response. People are still going to reject. You think, well, what did I do wrong? I should have thought about this verse. I've got hindsight that's 20, 20 all the time. Oh, if I only would have thought about this verse, you know? You know what? It still doesn't mean they're going to believe. It still doesn't mean they're going to fall down and say, what must I do to be saved like the Philippian jailer last week? How do I know? Well, if Jesus came and Jesus preached and Jesus reasoned with people and they could look Jesus square in the eye and say, no, crucify him. Well, then I can't expect much more to be happening with me. You can't expect the multitudes to be gathering in. It's not going to happen. But thankfully, the Lord has prepared hearts. Ones he is working with, the few. I like the way one brother put it, the, the Christians aren't, shouldn't be the moral majority, they should be the despised minority. But there is a minority. There are a few who will turn. Here Paul's going against preconceived notions. They thought the Messiah was going to be like Caesar, a king, taking over, knocking the Romans out of the way and making Israel the head of the world and not the tail. Paul needs to show them. You understand, Jesus needed to take care of your sin first. If he was like that, we'd all die and go to hell. He came first to take care of our sin. And here it is in the Scriptures. Let me ask you a question this morning. If, if you had to, could you reason from the scriptures with somebody? A son says, well, I don't believe Jesus is God. He's just a, he's just a man. I remember, I remember back at our old neighborhood, there was a Muslim guy when I was living over there and dating with uh, Matt and our roommates. The Muslim guy said, God's not a man. You see? I was glad to be able to say to him, I said, well, can your God, is he strong enough? Can he become a man? 
<laughs> you didn't know how to answer that one. But beyond that, how can you say from the Scriptures, what passage would you turn to to show that Jesus is God? What do you think? Which passage? Somebody offer something. John 8, 58. Read it out for us, Dave. Okay, good. Okay, so Jesus is. So, what does that mean? Before Abraham was, Jesus is. Just sounds like bad grammar. Where are you going to need to go next, Dave? That's right. We're going to see that Jesus, quote-unquote, bad grammar was, was in, intended. He was showing him that he is the I am spoken to Moses. You see? Good. How about if someone said, well, Jesus is a God, but he's not Jehovah. Can you show from the scriptures that Jesus is Jehovah? Very good. John 12. We won't turn there. We might turn to there later. If you step through John 12, it's talking about Jesus, and it says, this is the one who Isaiah saw when he saw his glory. You turn to that passage in Isaiah, you'll see that Isaiah says, I saw Jehovah or Yahweh. And they go back to John 12 and it says, Nevertheless, many, many did not believe in him. You see? Well, you can't see the religious leaders didn't believe in Jehovah. They didn't believe in Jesus. That Jesus is Jehovah. You see? It's there in John 12. If you follow it logically... And you can turn a Jehovah Witness with their Bible, they have a King James Bible with them, take them through it step by step. I'm not suggesting that everybody do this all the time with every situation. I'm just saying, I'm challenging you. Could you reason from the scriptures about these things? Okay, going on from here. What were the res results in Thessalonica? Well, some, some Jews believe, and a lot of the Greek proselytes believe. And others reject and they become jealous, and they incite a riot. You hear what the banner call, the crying call of their riot is? I love this. Wouldn't you like this to be said about you? These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Man, they're turning up stuff everywhere. You know? They just made it to Thessalonica. How do these guys know? Okay? It seems like their reputation proceeds them in a good way we're going to see that later even the demons in these foreign places jesus i know and paul i know you see but here it's nothing but jealousy and you know in the scriptures are accurately presented both in word and just as important in deed and attitude you know what there really isn't a defense there really isn't People start having ad homina or against the man arguments because they can't argue against the message. And usually it's just jealousy and other uh, distracting reasons. It's interesting here, there's a, a man named Jason who had to pay for this. And sometimes being a believer costs you something. 
Picking up in verse, verse 10. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they, when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the world with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the, to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Okay, so we have a situation in Berea. And again, unlike Philippi, which didn't have a synagogue, it seems, as they met Lydia by the river for prayer, Thessalonica had, excuse me, Thessalonica had a synagogue, and now so did Berea. Okay, so you have an, an establishment of Jewish men there, enough men to have a synagogue. And again, where do you see Paul doing? He goes into the synagogue and he presents the scriptures. Now, I don't doubt that Paul probably didn't change the message at all, but it's just different. People are different. Berea was a lot more receptive. They were open-minded. They were presented with things like, look at the Passover. Look, a male, not harmed, no bones broken. Jesus died in the prime of his, of his life. Not a bone. They were about to break his legs, but not a bone broken. Maybe, maybe Paul even presented Daniel 9, as we've studied here before, which account, accounts for the exact day when Jesus would come in on the donkey into Jerusalem. And he'd present convincing proof after convincing proof. But you know what? It was a different environment in Berea. They thought, wow, this, this could be true. Wait, wait, where's that chapter and verse again, Paul? And they dug into the scriptures. You know, we need to pray for people like that. We need to pray for a response like that where people are open-minded to the scriptures, that they want to study the word of God and see for themselves. So what were the results? It says that many believed Jews and Greeks. And the only thing that brought down this situation was the, Thessal the Jews from Thessalonica making their way all the way to Berea. You know, I don't doubt there was, a, there was a spiritual arrangement there. You have God on the march through his people, the gospel gaining ground with the salvation of souls. And Berea was so prepared, I don't think Satan had a defense. He had to go recruit people from Thessalonica to go ruin it in Berea. Praise the Lord. What did Jesus say? I will build my church. He's going to say to Paul later in Corinth, don't worry about it. Don't be concerned. Don't worry. I've got many people in this city. Jesus is building his church. What I asked myself as I was preparing for this message, and I think about this evangelism class, and I think about the history of Calvary Bible Chapel, where am I in that building process? Because when it's all said and done, there's only two things that are going to matter. It's not whether Fido or Fifi get a good blood test at my company, you know, 
or, or, the, or, or Gary, the next grocery transaction runs a little bit smoother, or all the things we work for, although we should make those things work well. When it's all said and done, there's one thing that's going to matter. Two things are going to matter. The Lord and other people. Jesus is building his church. He was building it in Thessalonica. He was building it in Berea. Where am I at in the building process? Some might say, well, you know, I don't have the gift of evangelism, Charlie. I'm just not gifted in that. I've tried it. I'm not, I'm not gifted. Well, I don't think I'm gifted in it either. If I was gifted in it, you'd see a whole building full of people saved. That hasn't been my experience. Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry or your service. Remember the gifts, people are gifted, they're gifted to help us. You're thinking, well, what do I do in this situation? Well, the evangelist comes along and says, you know what, I've done this and this worked. So instead of being discouraged and not wanting to try it again, you're encouraged and built up. Oh, I didn't think of that. See, they're gifted, they help you, and we all do the work. We all do the work. Okay, going on from here, again, this is just, to me, this is just thrilling. Seeing people say Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, we've already done Galatia and, and Phrygia over here. We're going through Asia, and now God's leading them, leading them on to Athens. Okay, so picking it up in verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. And then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all of the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. What do you think about that situation as far as an audience for the gospel? Is that something you'd be pursuing? Well, you you got a better heart than I do. I'll tell you. I look at that and I go, man, that looks like a waste of time. All these guys are doing is just standing around talking. You know, talk, 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 talk. You know? Are these guys really open? Are they, are they really going to do something? You see Paul's heart. He sees that, sees that the city was given over to idols. When a well-known Roman put it this way, you go to Athens, it's easier to find an idol than a man. It was that bad. Philosophers philosophizing. Epicureans and Stoics. Epicureans said, you know, they said a lot of things, but one of them was, just enjoy it. They're more hedonistic, filled with, you know, have pleasure. Don't worry about afterlife. There is no afterlife. You just go back into the ground, that's it. The Stoics said, nope, you've got to have self-control, have maintain your emotions, get the best out of this life, because there's no afterlife. 
in Areopagus, this Mars Hill, this place in Athens where they had all these philosophies and people were teaching and, and all this stuff, all these ways about life that are man-made. Most of them did not believe in an afterlife and just about none of them believed in a physical afterlife. That you'll have a physical body raised to enjoy the afterlife with. So I appreciate Paul. I appreciate Paul and his flexibility. Because he started in the synagogues. But you synagogue and the Jews, but you're in Athens. Seems like he didn't have much of a response in the synagogue. So he goes to the marketplace. You see, this is an environment, we're talking about religious things. It's, it's not really accepted. It's pretty apparent everybody does it. You see, but the gospel sticks out. I'm talking to you about Jesus who rose from the dead. He's alive physically, not just as a spirit being. Okay, picking up in verse 22. And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. That's kind of an understatement, isn't it? For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on, of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlook, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Okay, we see that Paul's not detoured. If anything, his heart goes out. Hey, Jake, read that next one. His heart goes out to them, and what he does is he finds a transition. This is an altar to the unknown God. It's been said this, what this was taken from was from, from Rome, from the Palatine Hill. And I can't read Latin or Greek. I'm not sure which one that is. It looks like it's Latin. But that would be something it looked like, you see. 
Now, I would think most good Jews, you go into a place like this, and the place is filled with idols. Oh, you're just nauseous. You don't want to do anything to get out of there. Blah. Right? It's the one true God. What are you guys doing? You're all washed up. You don't know what you're talking about. You see? Now, those things might be true, but Paul had a heart for these souls who would die without the knowledge of Christ and who would spend a Christless eternity in hell. You see? So he takes this bridge, this bridge, this, this uh, preaching point, this transition. He finds something he can talk to them about. All right, well, let's talk about this unknown God. Okay, the one you can't form with your hands because you're not sure who he is. That's the one I want to talk to you about. Okay? You see, he's giving them credit. He says, the unknown God whom you worship. Would we say that about somebody? They had some stone thing and they're worshiping some unknown God. Oh, yeah, you're worshiping the same God I believe in. You'd be hesitant to do that, wouldn't you? I know I would. It challenged me as I read this. You see? He's not saying they're worshiping him in the right way. He's not saying they're saved. What he's saying is, it's the unknown God, because he's still unknown to you, but I want to tell you who he is. You see? And he's taking them where they're at, and he's bringing them closer to Christ. You see? It's a different environment than the synagogue, but Paul's flexible. We learned that last week. What does he say? I'll become all things to all men, that, by, that I might by all or any means save some. You see? So he starts with this. He's not... He's not compromising see we think of that as compromising he's not compromising at all he's starting them with where they're at this god whom you worship who's unknown to you him i want to proclaim you see verse 24 he says god who made the world and everything in it since he is lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made with hands he starts them from where they're at and he quickly goes to the true knowledge of god you see Everything else was dependent. Their gods, this god was dependent on this god, they were the child of this god, and blah, blah, blah. And so the myth, Greek mythology goes. You see? He was quickly taking them to the true knowledge of God. Verse 25, Nor is he worshipped with men's hands. And what he means by that is, he didn't need the animals you offer to the other gods or the grains that you feed to the other gods. The true living God doesn't need anything. He made everything. By definition, if he made everything, he couldn't need anything. Because it wouldn't be there before he created it. You see what's missing in this whole passage? How many Old Testament Bible verses do you see quoted? There's none, is there? There aren't any. How are you going to quote the Old Testament to a bunch of Greeks on top of Mars Hill who are philosophizing? You can't. You got to take them where they're at. Start with their philosophy and then take them where you need to go. Now, obviously, you're going to have to bring the scriptures in. Sooner the better. But what he's doing is he's casting out the net and he's seeing who's interested. And then he also confesses, says, we are all one from him. He's saying, we're all his offspring. We're the same. Think about that. That's huge. Now, let's be honest. 
we have some thoughts about other types of people. Could be thoughts about race, occupation, looks, you know. As soon as you bring up that topic, you know what? We're all the same. God created us all. We're all on equal footing. Doesn't that just instantly bring you together with that person? No matter what they look like, no matter what they've done, no matter what they've said, we're all sinners who need a Savior. You see? And that's what Paul, a Jew, remember it was said in the, in the, the Talmud of the Mission, the commentaries in the law, or it was just a saying that a Jew would say, I'm glad I'm not a, a woman, dog, or a Gentile. You know, about that order. He had a very low esteem for Gentiles. Paul's saying, no, we're all the same. We're all from one God. And he tells him he's in complete charge. He set the pre-appointed times. Who raised up, allowed Alexander the Great to rise up? God did. Who brought him down? God did. Who let the Romans come to power? The Lord did. Who's gonna, who took them down as well? The Lord. He's putting in them the knowledge of God to build a conviction of sin. And he tells him he's in complete control, but now, even though they did these things in ignorance and built a stone altar to a God they didn't know, he's saying, God is saying now, you can know me. I want you to know me. You need to know me. In verse 30, that's where he says, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, to turn away from false idols and turn to God. Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. If you really study this passage, there's plenty of scripture in here. But he doesn't quote the psalmist. He doesn't quote uh, Isaiah directly. That wouldn't mean anything to these people. But all these things are true from Scripture. God is going to judge the world in righteousness. These Gentiles need to know that. Many here at that time who rejected Paul, where are they now? Suffering for their sins. You see? And there were a few who got saved. And I'm glad that Paul didn't have the preconceived notions and disdain for that type of environment I did. He cared about that one soul who would listen and get saved. And I praise the Lord for that because there's a guy named Dionysius. It says he was an Areopagite. That tells me it seems like he lived there. Man, can you imagine living there? I don't know, maybe he swept the place or cleaned it up or just lived right next door to it. Could you imagine living under this philosophy and these philosophers all the time? Man, your head could be all messed up. But you know what this tells me? When the truth finally came, it rung in so clear. It rung in so clear. Dionysius, by, by the Spirit of God, was able to cut through everything else, and he went, that's it. That's what I've been looking for. That's what I need. I need someone who's going to save me from this judgment that's coming. Someone who's approved by God from the resurrection of the dead. Paul, tell me more. At the same time, you see a little woman, maybe off on the side, maybe not involved in the conversations, hanging around, following a little bit closer, 
wanting no more herself, Damaris. And it says in others as well, you see. This showed me, although I would have no personal like for that type of environment. It reminds me of Berkeley. All these people talking about all this stuff, you know. It's like, ugh. Just give me one person alone I could talk to who's really interested, you know. But Paul would do it. He would spend all those time with those people who mocked him, didn't believe. Oh, yeah, we'll listen to you later, maybe, you know. But for those few who would be saved, it was worth it. Can I get the lights, Gary, please? Sorry for putting the lights off and on you. Is it worth it to us for the few who will be saved? We've been led to, to have an evangelism uh, time, the chapel, a couple of classes. And um, again, I am I, uh, a bit uh, envious, as you can see. Um, and I appreciate uh, everyone who's involved in that. He said, well, you know, we don't want to go door to door. I think it depends on how you do it. You know? What are we going to do? Well, what we don't have today is we don't have any synagogues. At least not ones that you and I could walk into. And we don't have a prevalent religious environment that we live in today, do we? If anything, we're post-religious. We're a post-Christian environment, aren't we? To talk to people about spiritual things, do you see anyone clam up faster than that? And look at you weird? There's a few exceptions, but generally speaking, that happens a lot in our culture today. So what do we do? What methodology are we going to use? Paul used synagogues because that's what he knew and that's what he grew up with. I appreciate the way I heard Eric mention this class. We're new to the neighborhood. We're neighbors. And you approach people as neighbors. It's interesting. We had an open house. And we don't even own the house. But that doesn't matter to us. We take reasons to have open houses. So we had an open house at this place we moved in around the corner around on the other side of the railroad tracks. And to a person, everyone who came, and most of the court came, they all said, boy, this is great. We've never heard of anyone having an open house before in this court. This is great. You know? And I just thought, why didn't any of you guys do it? <laughs> you know? People don't think about that. But you know what? They appreciate it. When the neighbors come out and say hi, hey, how you doing? You're bridging that gap. There's almost like this unwritten law of only talking to the neighbors when you have to, right? We all kind of sense it, right? How many of us really know our neighbors really well? Well, when the Christian steps out, it just says hi. It just says, hey, if you go, yeah, oh, you're going on a trip? Yeah, I can watch your stuff. I can water your lawn. What, what, what do you need? How can I help you? Hey, I see uh, you guys are expecting another one. How about we bring dinner by? I forget who was the situation we were in, dear, but that was a situ- it was something that they were floored. To offer a meal to someone while they're, ha- while they're in a pregnancy to us, it's, it's almost, unfortunately, almost taken for granted. Okay, you, you set up the meals, you sign up, blah, 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 you know. You go outside these four walls, and people are floored by genuine kindness. Neighborly. I think that's an excellent approach. We've just moved in a couple months ago. We're your neighbors. You know, not just here at the chapel, co-workers, making time for lunch. I was convicted about this lately. I try to make time 
to go out to lunch with coworkers, to get to know them. Not because they're going to be a spiritual project and I'm going to give them a dose of the gospel. No, no, no. Did that ever work for us before we were saved, did it? It was genuine concern and kindness shown by somebody else. Now, sometimes we forget that in our anxiousness to serve the Lord. I thought, you know what? Here's a good prayer request. <laughs> Pray this for me. Lord, help me better. Help me to better do my job and my new responsibilities so I have time to take people out to lunch. Sometimes you're just so busy. We don't make time for people. And if you don't make time, what's the goal in life? The job? The doing things? We've got to do the things and we've got to do the job. But should that be the goal? The expression is earning the right to be heard. You talk about spiritual things, you, you, you don't, it's, it's like a no trespassing sign. You don't belong there. Okay? We, I don't know you well enough to talk about something that's that personal. See, it's not like Athens. Our culture is different. You've got to earn that right to be heard. Sometimes it doesn't take that long. When you show the kindness of the Lord to somebody, they go, okay, well, you're different. What's up? What's going on? No one acts like this. You know? Sometimes it takes a little bit longer. You know what? That's where faith comes in. Lord, I'm going to trust you to open the door. I'm not going to force it. I'm not going to get my pry bar out. And, you know? And everybody's upset and bothered. I'm going to wait for you, Lord, to open opportunity to talk to you, talk to them about you. Bible study preparation is a plus. I put a couple of challenges out there to answer some of these people you might meet. Maybe Jehovah's Witness. Maybe a Mormon. If you don't know how to reason with them from the scriptures, ask one of the brothers here. There's some simple ways of doing it to step, these, step through things that most people don't know. Most of these cults don't know because they they're not studying the truth. And I appreciate the other thing Eric said. By the way, this is how we're going to dress. <laughs> Why put two and a half strikes against you by dressing like this and going door to door? You know? Well, I, you know, I can't do I got to do this. Well, if you got to do it, I guess. But I like what Paul said. Become all things to all men. That's going to make you uncomfortable. Ready not to look like a cult, not to dress like one, not to be pushy like one, not to be argumentative. That's a soul for whom Christ died. By the time you're done, are they closer or further to the Lord? We used to go out to Berkeley, and there's a place in Berkeley called Sprawl Plaza. And certain times of the day, it's just lined with booths. And it could be political, it could be religious, it could be lifestyles, it could be lots of things. It's like, it's like Areopagus, like Mars Hill. One of the things you don't want to be is you don't want to be pushy. You don't want to be argumentative. You don't want to be pushing people away. When we're out of Berkeley in that situation, you'd have students walking by. And I don't know how he came up with this. He got it from someone else. But Jim McCarthy had this scale. And a zero was someone who was open to a hearing of the gospel. Okay? 
And then you got positive numbers from there up to salvation. Then you had negative numbers. Well, most Berkeleyites, you rated at about a minus 15. Okay? Now, I'm saying that with the exceptions. I, I love my brethren here and saved and praise the Lord that they're saved, excuse the expression, out of Berkeley. <laughs> you know? Because it was true. You went there and it was so hard. When I go to Berkeley, I can feel the spiritual oppression. And most of them, there are, they're at a minus 15. And if you think you can get them from minus 15 to minus zero, it could happen. But you better be following the Spirit of God closely. I would say get them from a minus 15 to a minus 12. I was talking to this one kid. Oh, I believe in evolution. I said, okay, well, you believe in evolution. Okay. So I worked him back from evolution. You would believe we came from monkeys. That's right. And then the monkeys came from smaller mammals. Yeah, that's right. And then the mammals came from some type of quasi-thing reptile, right? Right. And then the reptiles came from amphibious things and then into the water. We went through it slowly. Just went through it slowly. Make sure I understood. Not, not being sarcastic, but making, to showing him I understood where he was coming from. You see? I said, okay. So then from there we come from you know, electrical fields and this ooze and carbon and a zap, right? Yeah, something like that. It does kind of sound silly by the time you're done, but you got to keep a straight face. And so we get there. I said, where did the electrical come from and the carbon and the hydrogen and stuff? Oh, a big bang. I thought, oh, okay. So where did all the stuff in the big bang come from? Oh, I don't know. Okay, that's what I want to talk to you about. You see? That's what I want to talk to you about. And I wanted to get him thinking about the fact that his... Oh, evolution. I'm at Berkeley. I believe in evolution. You know what? It's got a big, huge buck hole in the bucket there in evolution. It doesn't tell you where it all came from. Let's talk about the truth. And let's get him one step closer to shaking that foundation of evolution and praying that God would save his soul. little watering, a little sowing, and see how God gives the increase. I think when we go door to door, we need to to not try to kidnap people to go into church. I actually don't believe in taking people to church if they don't know the Lord. I mean, if they want to come, that's great, but I don't, I don't believe in forcing them. Rosemary, we went through, I don't know, six, seven chapters in Stranger. She hadn't said anything about going to church, and I haven't mentioned it either. So I need to get, you know, I need to get more involved in things. Okay. You know? I want, her, I want the Lord to work on her life, to her to have that natural desire, as new believers do, to be with other believers. And to fellowship, you see. In the meantime, she is very comfortable. She's, I'm so glad we had this Bible study in my house. And she list, list, listed the assorted reasons that I never knew before. It was perfect. It was great. When we go out to people, think of the door-to-door evangelism especially, we need to be ready to give and not take. Hey, we got some activities for kids. Your kids need any activities during the summer? Good grief, knock them over with a feather, right? We've got kickball during the summer. Well, how about during the week? Friday nights we have an a activity for kids. I'll tell you, I've seen my kids are active. All their friends are active. And all the parents need rest. You know? Bring them on over here. We'll take care of them. We're going to teach them Bible stories. And we're going to play games. We're going to have a good time. Does that sound good to you? Just, just want to know. Because we're going to be doing it if you want to like to come. You want us to teach them Sunday school? Bring them. We'll teach them Sunday school. How many stories have you heard of kids who started off going to Sunday school by themselves? And there's enough stories about how it didn't impact, but how many did have an impact on that kid? 
And sometimes that child had an impact on the parent. You see? Yeah, if you want your kid to know uh, the Bible, bring them all over here. We'll teach them Sunday school. How about prayer requests? You know, we're your neighbors here in the area. We just like to know how we can pray for you. You give someone, you show someone general concern, good grief. You probably hear a whole bunch of stuff. And then guess what? You now know that neighbor in a more intimate way than you ever, ever did or probably would have before. Our church would like to pray for your needs. Practical helps. Meals for expecting parents like we mentioned. Yard work. But you've got to do that tactfully. You know? Um, we got some young people looking for some things to do. You need some help on your yard work. You know, the weeds are this tall. <laughs> well, they just like some, some work to do. You know? Of course, you're going to have to have some young people willing to do that. Beginner's Bible studies, for those who are interested, showing genuine concern for a person, winning the right to be heard. You've got to be flexible. I have one brother. He went to a coworker and said, Lord, what do I say to him? The Lord said to him, ask him to go to church. That's the last thing you would think to do, wouldn't it? It's the last thing you do with someone you hardly ever know. You want to go to church with me, Right? <laughs> the brother said, Lord, I don't want to do that. So yeah, I asked him to go to church with you. So he went up to him and said, you want to go to church with me? He said, yeah, I would actually. Boing. <laughs> be flexible. You never know. Be willing to be crazy for the Lord. He didn't go to church that Sunday. Brother thought, oh, well, he wasn't serious. Lord said, go ask him again. Lord, you're not serious. He's expecting me to, too. I don't, you know, it's uncomfortable, awkward. Go ask him again. So he sees him. Hey, I was going to ask you about, the, about coming to church. I, yeah, I know I missed last Sunday. I was wondering if you're going to talk to me about it. You want to go this Sunday? Yeah, I do, actually. Things got something happened. I do want to go. And we know how that goes. Things do happen. How many times do you invite somebody to church and things happen to them? And you know they're legitimate, often. you got to have a heart for people. Well, we're out of time. We need to have a heart for people like the Lord Jesus does, like Paul did. We need to adapt to where they're at. We still might get doors slammed in our, in our face. You know what you're going to get sometimes? You're going to get genuine thankfulness. People who appreciate the fact that you care for them. They might not be going to church next week. They might not be getting saved next year. But you, you've been a good ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. You've brought someone closer to Him. Lord, we do want to thank you we want to thank you for your book of Acts. We thank you, Lord Jesus. You're the one who's active in the lives of the believers. You're the one who are saving these souls through Paul, through Silas, through Timothy and Luke. But it's you're the one who's building your church. Lord, oftentimes we, we focus on the, the slammed doors, the, the, the harsh words, or, the, or the, the crinkled nose when we bring up spiritual things. But Lord, we pray you would help us to renew our desire for you Lord, you said, where I am, there my servant will be also. And we pray you would help us to be right where you're at, whether it's in this neighborhood or each of our own neighborhoods, at work, Lord, in the doctor's office, in the hospital bed. Lord, that we might be where you're at, focusing on others out of love and and devotion to you. Help us, Lord Jesus, we ask in your name. Amen.